And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a Two True Freaks presentation. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And this is my show all about Marvel Comics' Man Without Fear, Daredevil. And it's coming back once again from a long break. I'm not going to get into the long, sordid history of exactly what occurred to precipitate this break. I will say I used this time to do some creative healing. What I mean is healing to my creative side, which sounds a little new agey, I know. To put it more succinctly, I got my act together is what I did. I got out of the funk I was in, I got organized, I basically integrated the show better into my day-to-day life. And the big thing I did was took a real break from the show, didn't touch it, didn't look at it for several weeks just because I needed to clear my head. Now, I'd been on a previous hiatus, but even during that, I was working on the show just trying to push through the creative block I was in. And during this time, I went to New York, hung out with the Two True Freaks, got inspired, and finally managed to achieve a blank slate to reapproach the show in the way that it should be, and basically positioned myself to ensure a weekly output. Now, that brought up a question on Facebook from Brad Date, I believe, who asked why I didn't explore a bi-weekly or monthly format of some kind. I think that's a valid question, and I didn't have an answer for it at that time, but I have thought it through since then. For me, the weekly format gives a good sense of continuity and a connection. It feels frequent, but not too frequent. Um, When it's done right, there's really a good, consistent flow to it that just makes the show work. But there is the risk. A weekly format has its problems in terms of production because it has to go through pretty quickly. And when it goes off the rails, it is hard to get back on them. And it's impossible to hide some of those errors that you make. So you accept the risk with the benefit. And to me, changing to another release schedule, whether it's bi-weekly or monthly, the idea would be let's make it bigger, let's make it better because people are waiting longer for the episodes. What it would end up doing is kind of being counterproductive. We would kind of be at the same production schedule I'm at now. Having said that, I'm not opposed to changing the format somewhere down the line. It's not something that's on the table right now, but at some point the show may slow down a little or what have you. Right now, I'm in a perfect position to begin releasing episodes just like it used to be. And if you want a good example of a show that I did where I did explore different formats, take a look back at Pad Smash. Pad Smash was an Incredible Hulk podcast I did uh, initially solo and then with Michael Bailey and Lee Busby and then just me and Lee Busby. And we covered the Peter David run on The Incredible Hulk. Well, that show started out bi-weekly. It went weekly. It went on hiatus because of its weekly format catching up to me. And then we came back at a bi-weekly or twice monthly rate before settling back into weekly. Now, of all that, the most response I got in terms of emails, in terms of Facebook chatter, was the weekly format. Because, again, it's consistent, it's frequent, there's a continuity to it. So that's why I do kind of stick with the weekly format. It feels natural, it feels right, even though it has its challenges, its frustrations, and sometimes it's embarrassing to go on hiatus for a little bit because you just let things get away. To that end, I do want to mention Pad Smash is once again available. The episodes have been archived, I've gone back, re-uploaded, them. I've redone all of the posts 
and they are actually over at natworld.net. That's www.natworld.net. Remember that nat begins with a G, so it's G-N-A-T world.net. At this stage, all episodes are archived and available for your downloading pleasures. Now, speaking of Padsmash, a frequent emailer to Padsmash was Russell Bragg, who is dropping us an email this week. Russell's email reads, Dave's Daredevil Podcast 85, The Curse of Capistrano. Russell writes, Hi Dave, sorry I haven't been in contact for a while, just know that I am listening and enjoying. I had to email about your Zorro episode, I'm a huge Zorro fan. As it is with my love of comics and superheroes, I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware of Zorro. My mom always loved the Disney Guy Williams Zorro shows, so I watched them growing up. I remember watching the Zorro cartoon in conjunction with Tarzan and the Lone Ranger. We watched the 1974 The Mark of Zorro TV movie starring Frank Langella. I remember the Family Channel Zorro series starring Duncan Rieger from the early 90s. I want to say we saw Zorro the Gay Blade in theaters, but I can't remember for sure. As goofy as it was, I love it. The Antonio Banderas movie was okay, I guess. Definitely saw it in the theater. Zorro comics are scarce in my collection, meaning I have none, except for the trade I bought with the Zorro and Lone Ranger team-up which is the death of Zorro. I will definitely get more as time goes on. I know I didn't get to, but I remember my brother dressing as Zorro one year for Halloween, complete with an aluminum foil sword. I did dress as Captain Marvel one year, another of your favorite characters, I presume. Big grin. Zorro is a great character. I'm glad you talked about him. I also want to thank you for reminding me of my love for Zorro. Continued success, Russell Bragg of Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC Comics Presents show. Now, Russell, your email brought a big smile to my face because you display how Zorro resonates. Even in some of the fiction we see today, I have had a lot of good feedback, kind of similar to what you're saying to that Zorro episode, which was one that I was a little worried about. It's always risky to go off topic, especially when it's semi-planned. Now, the Shazam episode I did, that was last minute, got to get something out, here's what I've got in the archive. But that episode, it was something I wanted to do for a while, the the Zorro episode, I mean, because I thought it was a, a good message about where our characters today find their roots. And by the way, if you are out looking for Zorro comics, I found out that Matt Wagner's Zorro series from Dynamite, which is excellent, by the way, it is available in an omnibus form. So take a look for that, especially if you're using the Two True Freaks Amazon link. Now, I will say something. I really liked the Antonio Banderas Mask of Zorro movie. I thought it had a lot of adventure. It had a unique idea rather than rehashing old Zorro stories. The sequel, Legend of Zorro, was decent enough, but I really, really liked Mask of Zorro a lot. I will mention that a new version of Zorro is coming to screens at some point. It'll just be entitled Z. It's from the director of Gravity. So Zorro still resonates. And there are several characters I want to talk about in that vein who aren't directly Daredevil, but they do have their influence over Daredevil, such as Phantom, The Shadow. I don't have an ETA on those episodes, but at some point I will pop them into the feed. For now, coming back from the hiatus, it's probably pretty good to stay on topic with our man, Man Without Fear, Daredevil himself. But ultimately, it's always good to hear from you, Russell. Glad to hear you're still with us. And remember, everybody else, that the email address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. As for this episode, it's back to Daredevil in the groovy 70s as we move closer and closer to episode 100, and I have been in contact with a potential guest for that episode that I think you're going to enjoy, and a topic that I know you're going to enjoy. For now, though, this week's Stilt Man goes to Hollywood. Pretty much, that's all I need to say, right? How can you resist that? That's what we'll be looking at right after this podcast promo break. everybody, I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. 
You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on. An Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of shit about the way he acted... (laughs) Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones, as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up, like you said, he, he murders these people. And that's that's not my DC Comics. That's not superheroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story, this story is, it's it's not bad. It's not great. It's it's like the character himself. It's like, he's just, it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery, as we discuss The Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction, and without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like you know the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead Man. <laughs> well... It's, it's a kind of a waffly dead man story. It wants to be a dead man story. It starts to be a dead man story. It forgets it's a dead man story. And then it comes back to being one. Um, all in the span of eight pages. Alan Middleton as we discuss Blackhawk. That there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm-hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that tapping into that fertile story and michael bailey as we discuss superman there is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that so it really exists in its own world at a time where the superman books were becoming more and more linked so it's this oddity on a number of levels and many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast, coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details. When we left off, uh, before the hiatus, I should say, Matt had revealed his secret to Karen. So Karen knows he's Daredevil and this caused continuous conflict with Matt as Matt continued being Daredevil despite telling Karen he would stop. Now along the way, there was a villain called the Stuntmaster who was basically a stuntmaster who was paid to kill Daredevil. He failed. He landed in prison for his effort. Now, both of these events kind of converged as Karen left New York to go to California, which we saw last time, and Daredevil followed. Along the way, he ran into a reform stuntmaster who's trying to just make his way in Hollywood since stunts are the big thing in the 70s. Daredevil helped bail stuntmaster out of a bad situation and kept him legit, and then bailed Karen out of a bad situation on the set of Strange Secrets in issue 66, which we covered in episode 64. 
With this week's episode, we pick right up after that with the very next issue, Daredevil number 67, which is the August 1970 issue, which features a cover by Marie Severin and Bill Everett. On the cover, we have Daredevil and Stiltman having an aerial battle above a seashore littered with wrecked ships. Stiltman tells Daredevil that he finished off his friend the Stuntmaster and the man without fear is next. You know what? Here's the thing. I have every reason to love this cover. You know my love of Stiltman. And Stiltman lends himself to great visual angles. There's a great seascape below. Everything about it should appeal to me, yet it doesn't grab me. I mean, everybody's miles may vary, but for me, it's as if some aspect is missing. Perhaps that strong sense of motion that Gene Colan normally supplies? Because it should be dizzying, but it's not. And I should be clear, I like Marie Severin. But like issue 63, which we covered last time, something just doesn't connect for me on her covers. Put me in her Hulk work, I'm happy. But with the covers we've seen on this book, it comes off as derivative of Colan's previous covers of the same type. I also wondered if color was a big aspect, because it can make a big difference, and I was originally reading out of the Essential version, but when I fired it up on Marvel Unlimited, it still has this meh quality. And I can't point to anything specific. On a technical level, this is a great cover. It just doesn't connect for me. Peeking inside the issue, we have a story entitled Stiltman Stalks the Soundstage, which is a fantastic title. A little hard to say, but fantastic. And this particular tale was written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Gene the Dean Colon, inked by Sid Shores, and lettered by Artie Simic. And if you can't get your hands on the issue, you can find it reprinted in Essential Daredevil Volume 3, which I mentioned, Marvel Digital and Comixology for sale, or on Marvel Unlimited, just for the tap of a button. As to the story inside, it goes as follows. Matt Murdock, still in Los Angeles, stops by Karen Page's apartment just in time for the budding young actress to get a call from a TV producer. It seems they want her to appear in a television pilot for a show based around the Daredevil villain-turned-ally Stuntmaster. And they want the man without fear to appear in the pilot if Karen can find a way to contact him. Matt reluctantly agrees to do the show. Later, Daredevil arrives at the studio and takes a meeting with the studio bosses to discuss his future stardom. During the discussion, Daredevil's super-keen senses pick up on an eavesdropper to despite the office being on the fourth floor. However, when the curtains are drawn, nobody is there. How could they be at such a height? As filming progresses, Daredevil and Karen get used to the hurry-up-and-wait attitude of Hollywood as Stuntmaster prepares for a big stunt. As Daredevil takes a call from Foggy, trying to track down Matt, Stuntmaster takes a break and heads to his trailer, where he gets cold-cocked by a hidden Stiltman. Stiltman applies some makeup to look like the Stuntmaster and takes his place on the set, planning to kill Daredevil in the guise of a stunt jump. But Daredevil's suspicions are aroused when the faux Stuntmaster preemptively explains his leg cylinders are new exhausts for the motorcycle. And as expected, Stiltman botches the stunt and Daredevil dodges the out-of-control motorcycle, but with his ruse ruined, the Stiltman eschews the disguise and attacks the old-fashioned way. Daredevil and Stiltman do battle over the water, and Daredevil uses his billy club to wrap up the Stiltman like an AT-AT or AT-AT or Walker and take him down. With all of that wrapped up, Daredevil stands by as Karen films a love scene with the Stuntmaster and asks her if she will return to New York with him. Karen says that she doesn't know, exhausting Daredevil's patience, and he swings off for home, reminding her that he won't wait forever. And the issue closes with Karen caught between the allure of stardom and the horn-headed hero that she loves. Alright, I'm going to confess up front that this issue was chosen not quite at random, but for simple reasons. One was, hey, it's the Stilt Man. The other was, hey, this follows the issue we covered way back when. Does that sound appropriately ominous? Well, it might. Let me get into what I think here. Starting at the beginning of the issue, of course, we start with this scene where Matt playfully chastises Karen for leaving her door unlocked. You know, dude, you're the one that walked right in, you creeper. You kind of went all the way from New York to California just to kind of, uh, I don't want to say stalk, 
but to kind of catch the girl, you know? It should be romantic, but it comes off a little creepy. But on the other side of that coin, Karen was just attacked by Brother Brimstone, so she should be showing a little bit of caution. I guess that's superficial, I don't know. But I gotta say, in this scene, the detail in Karen's apartment is astonishing. I mean, it is really minute. However, when looking at it in color, the colors look like Casey and the Sunshine Band threw up on Donna Summer, and they all kind of exploded. And this is the residue. Now, conveniently, as Matt arrives, Karen gets a call from Mr. Stevens, this television producer. Matt and Karen's relationship is kind of contentious. It's got its ups and downs, but right now she needs Matt to be Daredevil, the thing she's not been dealing with. She's like, I know I left New York and you, because of you being Daredevil, I can't deal with that, but can you do me a solid and be Daredevil? Now, I will put the card down that, yes, this is on a television set, it's secured to some extent, but she just came off of a television set that was secured where people died. So it strikes me as incredibly hypocritical that she would even ask him to don the Daredevil duds just to act in this show. Very hypocritical to help her career, but not their relationship. And before you throw stones at me, let me also point out that Karen completely misses Matt saying, what I believe is a very real concern that she's going to get famous and that she'd be too big for what he calls a poor man's Perry Mason like him. This is a very real cry for help from Matt. He's trying and he's seeing something happen in front of him, no pun intended, sorry about that, where Karen is suddenly escalating. She's becoming famous, she's becoming in demand, and he may become a small fry to her. And Karen completely is oblivious. So what we're seeing here is Karen saunters into town, hits Los Angeles, falls into a soap opera gig that gets her attention, and people want to cast her because people were killed on that. So her career is taking off like a Kardashian sex tape. So yes, I will give her credit that yes, this career thing is new to her, it's enticing, but her main reason for coming here was to get away from Matt and Daredevil and the drama, and here she is drawing that drama back into an already complex situation with her career. Which you would think would make really good drama on the comic book page, but you would be wrong. And I think it's because of this insecurity of watching Karen's career take off that Matt decides to do it. Puts on the costume, goes to the studio with his cocky act intact, and gets an offer for $50,000 to do the part. Now, in my anal retentive nature, I'm wondering if they're going to give that to him in cash, since, you know, the payment method didn't work well for Spider-Man. It's kind of how things backfired for Peter Parker. Now, at this stage, I really want to point out that we're three pages into the issue. We basically have one Three's Company-style splash. I mean, all we're missing is Mr. Furley coming in. We have some talking heads talking back and forth. We have one, and only one panel of Daredevil swinging over some palm trees, basically just commuting. And it's a small panel. It's not even enough for Gene Colan, who I'm normally enraptured with his Daredevil swinging, to really sell me on it. So, so far, three pages into a 20-page issue, nothing has happened. Now, Colin is somewhat on point. As we go into the meeting, we see this great panel of Daredevil's radar sense, and I really, really want this panel. I just want the speech balloons removed because it is gorgeous. So Daredevil says, yeah, let's do this because I'm whipped as a Devo song here, going all the way to California to search for this girl, falling into stardom, you know, as one does. And then we're on the set, and it is really a hurry-up-and-wait environment. The set has to be set up, uh, the cameras have to be adjusted, the stunt has to be prepared. So they're just kind of hanging around. And Karen gets a call. And she kind of gets a little uppity. Doesn't even ask Daredevil to get it for her, she just implies that he should. And I gotta admit, as uppity as it is, Karen looks so good. Even I would ask, more ice in your fresco, Miss Page? Yes, let me get that call for you. Karen's basically wearing this outfit that is courtesy of the Catherine Bach Greenacres Fusion Fantasy Collection. I mean, it really is pornalicious. And I say that not to be misogynistic, 
but because something clicked in my brain when I looked at it. With Karen, you have this idea of the Madonna whore, the idea of the good girl with that naughty side. And of course, as we know, Karen does fall into the porn industry, and I think I finally see what her appeal would be. How somebody would look at Karen and say, I got you. I know where to put you. I know the kind of film to put you in. I can see how Karen would catch the eye of a producer for adult entertainment. As usual, Colin's bringing life to the background characters. Everything looks canny. It looks tangible. From the director to the page boy announcing that the phone call is coming in for Karen. It all looks great, but nothing's happening. So like Daredevil and Karen in the book, we're kind of in this hurry up and wait situation. And I'm still waiting for something to happen. The most that's happened so far is a phone call. And then another phone call from Foggy. So Foggy is looking for Matt. Daredevil takes the call. Foggy doesn't put things together very well. So we have Daredevil sounding like Matt, who's in California with Karen, when Foggy knows Matt's in love with Karen and she just left him, and Foggy doesn't put the pieces together. I mean, it's a smorgasbord of evidence, enough to at least make him wonder, but nothing. Nothing at all. So as I kind of alluded to, we're six pages into this story now. We've had an incredible phone call added to the mix. It's like a Michael Bay remake of this old hee-haw skit. Lots of phone call action, which is great for a, potentially for an audio medium. It's fine for an audio visual medium. It's just not good on a static visual medium. As we move into Stuntmaster going back to his trailer, getting ready for the stunt, we have this great panel of Stiltman hiding in the corner, and it's eerie. It's eerie in a good way. It's probably one of the better panels in this issue. But as you look at it, it really does come off a little disconcerting, because you can tell he's repressing his mouth breathing, like he's one of those mouth breathers just watching the guy change shirts. And then Stiltman plays dirty pool knocking the stuntmaster out from behind but why now before i get into that let me just say that when stiltman jack stuntmaster in the skull it really does look like an enormous impact add to that the sound effect of kerwack and i felt my teeth rattling so it's a great presentation but let's be honest about what's happening here stiltman's plan of disguising himself as stuntmaster and trying to kill daredevil is ridiculous you're already a villain. Daredevil doesn't know you're there. Just attack. No, no, we've got to go well above and beyond. we got to bring out a makeup kit. And somehow he uses this small cosmetic kit to create a perfect resemblance to Stuntmaster. Now, Hollywood makeup artists will tell you a lot can be done with makeup. People can be aged. They can be de-aged. They can look like creatures. But it takes hours and hours and hours and a lot of very specific makeup techniques and very specific types of makeups and prosthetics. This is where the issue becomes a bridge too far when he does this perfect representation of Stuntmaster's face with just a small cosmetic kit. And the thing is, it's not like it's not presented well. We have this page where six out of seven panels on the page are devoted to Stiltman's Mrs. Doubtfire transformation, which does kind of try to lend a little bit of credence to what we're seeing. It just doesn't work. The only way it would work is if Stuntmaster leaves here, gets a job replacing Jarvis at Avengers Mansion as a hip, older British woman, and wacky ensues. Then I'm on board. By the way, the Stiltman as Mrs. Doubtfire, that's copyright this guy right here, 2016. And I don't want to go on a rant, but I'm going to anyway. You want more proof of how dumb this plan is? Stiltman decides not to use his legs. His main gimmick, his prized invention, he's gonna put those to the side and get on a motorcycle. Motorcycle stunts are dangerous. They're complex. 
They're precise. They require experience, especially something along the lines of what we're seeing here, where what it is is essentially Stuntmaster jumps across the chasm between two buildings and lands near Daredevil. Even Stuntmaster is getting geared up a little bit more than usual for this stunt, telling me it's more dangerous than usual. This is a complex stunt. Stiltman, as far as we know, has never even been on a motorcycle. There's no logic to this plan, people. There's nothing in this plan that shows any shred of success being possible. To that end, though, I do want to mention as goofy as Stiltman's legs are in concept, Colin makes up for that, making his legs look plausible. With his line work, they actually look like metal canisters. They actually look like they would telescope. They look like something that could work, as long as you don't think about it too much. Now, Stuntmaster is walking out. Daredevil notes the cylinders. He also notes that the heartbeat is different, and even the voice is different, and just chalks it up to nerves. Here's where I have to pretty much do a plot hole roundup. We open with Karen having just escaped from Brother Brimstone and near death, and she's leaving her doors unlocked and acting very casual. I don't care how many times you've had your bacon saved by Daredevil, just not gonna happen. Then we have Daredevil trying to be a TV star, which is fine until you start thinking it through that there would be pesky contracts and such and payment would be remitted hopefully in cash and who would want to put their face out there if they're trying to maintain a secret identity. And to that end, I really have to point out that Karen has this highly unlikely meteoric rise to fame that can only end badly. Let's throw on the board that Foggy fails to put together an astronomical number of coincidences pointing to Matt Murdock being Daredevil. Let's also put in that Stiltman leaves his main gimmick to be Stuntmaster. And the biggest one is the one I just mentioned. Daredevil notes the heartbeat, the voice, everything about Stuntmaster being different and dismisses it as nerves. Let's bear in mind that Daredevil has been in the presence of Stiltman multiple times. In the armor and out of it as Wilbur Day. Daredevil knows what Stiltman's heartbeat sounds like. He knows certain variances in his walk. He also knows Stuntmaster fairly well at the same time. And he completely botches is this. Daredevil wouldn't botch it. What's happening here, people, is this issue is bending over backwards to make this really unlikely concept work, and it's failing. So, of course, Stiltmaster gets on a motorcycle and totally botching the landing and wrecking, which is the perfect punchline. Like, he's the Lloyd Christmas of supervillains. But at this point, we go to plan B, which should have been plan A, which is donning the Stiltman armor underwater, I just want to point out, and attacking Daredevil. If only there were a solution from the beginning. And as he does so, he comes across the this poor couple on their boat just hanging out and steps on it and it smashes the boat. I just want to point out we do not see this couple again. They don't resurface later. Like G.I. Joe, you don't see the parachutes coming out, so to speak. We get no mention of, hey, we rescued that couple. So I have to assume that that poor couple just hanging out on their boat are deader than disco at this point. And I know what you're thinking, but Dave, there must be a great fight sequence. We must have some payoff, and no, not really. We get two pages, and Stiltman barely puts up a fight, and Daredevil suddenly has him toppling over like Jennifer Lawrence at the Oscars. Two pages constitute the entirety of the superhero battles in this issue. Now, Colin does here manage to capture the dizzying angles, everything I expected on the cover, but then we just stop. We slam into the wrap-up like hitting a brick wall. From here, the police arrive, they fish Stiltman out of the drink and daredevil had to do barely anything essentially we have no suspense no nothing no real build-up in a lot of ways and the frustrating thing is with the marvel method 
since it goes from a basic plot, which may be nothing more than a paragraph, to maybe a very, very loose half-a-page outline given to the artist who then draws it, and it's scripted, it's hard to place blame for a lackluster issue. Was Thomas's outline too bulky, or did Colin indulge all of the details and forget to tell the story? Both are entirely possible. I don't want to slam on Colin because the backgrounds and the characters, they all look great. And it's just like issue 66 when I covered it. It was a lot of waiting, it looked great, and then it was just done. Now, if this were a human interest book, let's say they adapted Petticoat Junction or some sort of soap opera with actors' likenesses, things of that nature, details looking like you would see on the screen, this would be superior. But when you have a superhero comic with Stiltman and Daredevil... Stiltman, a tall villain, Daredevil, somebody who slings around like a pinball, and you have this great basis for a wonderful visual issue. Don't waste Gene Colan on something that comes across as nothing but talking heads. There's no moodiness to this issue like there was with Strange Secrets. There's very little motion. There's nothing to justify having Gene the Dean Colan on board. You could get a fill-in to do this issue and you would be fine. I mean, ultimately, on a different level, the Matt Karen romance, which is the centerpiece of this. The reason Matt is in California is because Karen is in California. But that whole centerpiece falls apart. Matt tries to put it on Front Street. You know, he says, me or your career. Then you have questions of should he be supporting her? Career is taking off and he's asking her, hey, come back and be a secretary. At the same time, she's found something special. But if we play the what if game, if Karen had gone back with Matt, she wouldn't become a porn star and get into drugs and all of that wouldn't have happened. Now, we can't really apply that too much to the issue in and of itself because nobody knew Born Again was ever going to happen at this stage. But when your entire subplot falls apart to basically Daredevil saying, come back with me and I won't wait forever, you've already shot it in the foot. And it just doesn't move that ball down the road. Now, oddly, even though, again, nobody knew Born Again was even in the works, there is a little hint of the corruption of Karen Page. It's a foreshadowed. As Daredevil's swinging off saying, I won't wait forever, Stevens, the producer, comes in and says, let me offer you more than he did. And you know what? I'm really not sure if he's speaking of money or sex or emotion. So you start seeing how these things become ambiguous to Karen. Even though the Matt-Karen relationship stuff drops flat, that scene alone was the piece of the puzzle that I really ended up taking away from the book. Let me go ahead and bring things in for a final verdict and kind of put all of this on the table. Sometimes a goofy issue is fun. Sometimes it's okay to have a sort of hackneyed idea that isn't very plausible come together if I enjoy an issue. And if that were the case, I would certainly apply that mentality to this issue. But it's not. The details in the art were amazing, yes. The characters looked vivid, yes. But when you think about this in publishing timeframes, it's been one month since the last issue. It's one month till the next issue. The issue should be satisfactory on its own. It should be filled with some sort of heroics or action or drama or something with the character where something happens that's relevant. Beyond the huge plot holes I talked about, this issue suffers from being boring. It's fluff. It manages to accomplish nothing. There's no character work or action. The Matt Karen schism is the central piece and doesn't really manage to move that subplot along at all. In fact, at the end of Matt's trip to California, we're still in exactly the same place where his journey began. Oh, my heart is broken. Karen's gone to California. I'm still Daredevil. Nothing has happened. And I know that the party line was to show no change, but yet give the illusion of change. The thing is, this sequence of issues forgot to give that illusion. It only emphasized how much has not been accomplished 
charged with these issues on this trip to California. Despite that, the portions of the story pertaining to the strange secret soap opera, they managed to be moody. They managed to at least be interesting to some extent, if a little boring. The other portions of the trip played up the stranger in a strange land aspect with Daredevil in LA and the wackiness that it surrounds him. But this issue concluding that trip to California has nothing. You get a little bit of Daredevil rubbing elbows in Hollywood, but this issue concluding that sequence does nothing. Sure, you get a little bit of Daredevil rubbing elbows in Hollywood. You get a hint of a battle that's built on a premise so rickety a slumlord would voluntarily replace it, and it just falls apart. And yes, as I've made the argument, it does kind of set up Karen Page's new status quo, but to be honest with you, that helps set up Ghost Rider's comic more than it does Daredevil's. Basically, the best way I can put this, people, is this issue is a complete dud, which is my final verdict. Avoid it if you can. Hopefully we have better luck next week when we pull out another issue of Daredevil. In next week's issue, a villain is about to employ his extreme form of justice on an innocent group of teenagers in daredevil number 71 that is in one week until then as usual justice may be blind but it can see in the dark dave's daredevil podcast is a proud member of the two true freaks network of podcasts you can find the show's home at two Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder, and you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at Two True Freaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.